0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we will be joined a little bit later in the show by our interview guest this week, Virginia coach Brian O'Connor. First, I want to mention that the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check that out at rapsodo.com slash national database. Joe, we are are rolling along in September here. It's it's starting to get a little cooler weather around the country, even here in North Carolina. I mean, cooler is uh, of course a relative term. But, you know, we're we're getting into fall baseball. A lot of programs were active over this last weekend. Several of them were, were holding scrimmages. And that is very good to, to see just, you know, it's been a long time since we've had college baseball. Fall ball is a, you know, poor substitute for, for competitive games or the College World Series, obviously. But just to get any baseball going on out there has, has been good
1: to see. Yeah, it's been kind of nice. It feels... It's an overused term over the last however long six months now, but but a little bit of a normalcy it felt a little like a normal fall weekend to to scroll on social media and see various teams practicing and, and scrimmaging and I know there are some you know locally uh here that i will I will probably try to make an effort to get out to next few weeks that's kind of nice to be able to map that out a little bit and you know college football even still on a limited basis was on, and I know I had kind of a nice fall weekend this past weekend where I, you know, I spent most of Saturday watching college football and enjoyed that. And then, you know, Sunday just had myself a nice little day outside and enjoyed the sun and, you know, a little bit of cool breeze. And that and was a kind of a, a nice, nice tip, typical fall weekend to make it feel a little more normal. And that leads me to something I kind of stumbled upon earlier today and, and just, just noticed. And that's that, you know, we are now beyond six months since the season was stopped and then eventually canceled. And if six months removed from the end of the season in a normal year would put us, you know, right around Christmas, let's just say. And that means in a normal year, six months from the end of the season, we would be in heavy duty, like getting ready for the season mode. Like we, you know, we come back from New Year's and then it's basically full speed ahead for season preview stuff. So it's kind of crazy. I don't, I don't know about you, but it has felt like more than six months and way less than six months, but it certainly just feels weird to be six months removed from the season ending. And to think about the idea that if, you know, in a normal year, six months time would be enough to put us right smack dab in the middle of getting ready for the season to begin.
0: Well, I mean, the thing about that is it's already a really long off season at six months. And, you know, we knew it was going to be the case when three months got lopped off of the season, but you know, it, it just has really been extended, and then you throw in the fact that there wasn't summer baseball in the same way that we're used to, and you know, a lot of people have just been, you know, stuck without without baseball in in various parts of the country for for a really long time. It's uh, it, it is kind of crazy. I don't know. It definitely feels like six months ago that I was leaving Florida when the day the season was canceled. Um, it, that, that was, a, that was a while ago now, but, you know, it, it is, uh, it, it's an interesting comparison that that you note that, you know, the, the season generally ends June 25th ish, uh, you know, somewhere in that last week of June. And obviously six months later is one of the last weeks of December. And yeah, we're, uh, at, at that point, you know, once the the calendar year flips it, you know, things start moving real quick, players start coming back for the spring semester and your know, practice gets going and then all of a sudden you're six weeks out from the season and, and that time goes really quickly. And uh, we, are, we are nowhere near that yet. Uh, so yeah, hopefully uh, we, we can continue to, to roll through this extended off season. We appreciate everyone who has continued to listen to the podcast throughout this extended off season. And remember, if you're enjoying it, we would greatly appreciate any any ratings and reviews you can leave us over on your favorite podcasting app. Um, and make sure you're subscribed: Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, you can leave us a rating, a review, a subscription. We appreciate all of that, uh, and and we really appreciate you guys for for sticking with us uh, through this time. But you know, as as we're we're mentioning here, it's getting to be a little more. Uh, Typical obviously some places are are not able yet to to participate in fall practice hopefully everyone's able to get online at some point this fall with something uh, but for the places that are uh, are going it it's it has been nice to uh to have that little bit back in our our Twitter timelines or uh, you know just back in our lives uh, in, in general and and I know that that's especially true for the people actually involved with the programs, players, coaches, staff members, uh, and the like. The,
1: uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up before we really get rolling in earnest here is that, uh, one of the big news items that started to break over the weekend, there was some confusion and now I think it's become official today is that Deion Sanders is the next head coach of Jackson state football.
0: That's correct. He, uh, he announced it on his podcast last night, I believe.
1: That's yes. I did see that. Yes. Uh, interesting times that we live in. And, um, so he's an, a bit of an—he's well, first of all just an interesting person with his history as a, you know, two-sport player at Florida State, and then obviously one of the few who has done it at the NFL and major league level simultaneously. Uh, you know, one of the great, one of the great athletes just of 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 my lifetime, and uh, of course I'll be interested to see as a college football fan. I'll be interested to see what uh, you know what his tenure becomes at Jackson State. But he's kind of an interesting bit of my personal history. And that uh, until I saw a no-hitter uh, by UNC Greensboro this past season against Fairfield, I had never been in attendance, whether as a fan or as a, as a member of the media, I had never been in attendance for a no-hitter. I'd never seen one live until, until this past season. Before that, my closest call, uh, at least the most memorable one, uh, was, I was, as a kid, I was in, the Astro, it was in the Astrodome. The Astros were playing the Reds, and this is when Dion was, was on the Reds and the pitcher was the late Daryl Kyle who's one of my favorites as a kid and I think he was into the eighth with the no hitter the seventh of the eighth inning and of course these memories fade and I've tried to look for the baseball reference box score not that hard but I have looked periodically and I never can quite find it but uh, so anyway we're getting late into the game here and, and Dion comes up to the plate and of course the infielders are playing in because he's Deion Sanders, and, and basically any slow moving ground ball, he's got an infield hit. So the infielders are playing in, and that includes Bagwell at first base. And Deion reaches and kind of hits this flare, you know, over what ended up being over Bagwell's head. But Bagwell's drawn in, and also, you know, Bagwell is less than six feet tall. I mean, I think they probably goosed his official height up to 5'10 or 5'11, but I would probably not be that much shorter than him. And so he leaps for it. It just goes over his glove. I don't even think it landed in the outfield grass. I think it landed on dirt. Ultimately, it was not hit that hard, but that's what broke up the Daryl Kyle no hitter. And obviously, it would have been cool as a kid to have that experience. So it's different seeing it as a you know a thirty-two-year-old member of the media, you know, in a, in a just a random college game you're covering. There wasn't that kind of elation about it. But I am glad that that is not going to forever be the closest I ever come to seeing a no hitter in person.
0: That is. Uh... To think about Dion, like playing baseball these days, is kind of crazy. When I was writing some of my, um, you know, Mike Martin's cover story uh, last year before, you know, his his final season, we were, we were like looking through art uh, for for photos from, you know, players, former players in Florida State uniforms. And, uh, you know, we typed Dion Sanders into like the Getty Images search and like up pops this photo of dion like posing with some football trophy uh that we definitely like as soon as me and and matt eddie uh our our editor saw it we were like well that has to go in the magazine (laughs) like it's not baseball uh but like that has to go in and we put it in and like to to, go, to think about like Dion doing what he did at FSU and then continue it over into the pros, uh, pretty incredible. Uh, I don't think he's going to be a two-sport coach. Uh, Omar Johnson uh, continues to lead the Jackson State baseball program, but you know it's uh it, it's an exciting time. You know we'll see where where he goes with that, but just an exciting time for college football in the state of Mississippi when you think about uh the coaches that are involved and uh you know they they definitely love baseball down there as well so hopefully uh you know rising tides and and all the rest of that um you know not that anyone in the state of mississippi needs help attracting attention to to baseball but uh all should be a fun time down there at, at jackson state okay so we are going to get to our interview with Virginia coach Brian O'Connor in a second. Uh, Virginia coming into uh, an exciting 2021 season as one of the ACC favorites coming off of uh, a strong 2020 from what we saw, finished by winning their first ACC series against NC State. really seemed like they were building some momentum there just as the season uh, was canceled. So definitely very interested to see what Virginia has in 2021, and we're going to get to all of that in a second with Brian O'Connor, but first, a word from our sponsor, MyBookie. It's summertime, and at MyBookie, that can mean only one thing. It's winning season. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means free bets, sports super contests, survivor, and more. At MyBookie, winning season is all about your chance to win big. Bet NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball, UFC, and then some. The craziest sports summer of your lifetime is here. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your cash. Invest in your intuition. Select from hundreds of future bets, or you can bet games in real time with MyBookie's live betting. Put that big brain of yours to good use. Use promo code BASEBALLAMERICA, that's all one word, baseball America, and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play, designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. Thousands of cross-sport wagers, props, and parlays await. Sign up now to bet with the best and celebrate your victory. Your winning season begins today, only at myBookie. Remember, that's promo code BaseballAmerica to double your first deposit. All right, so with that, let's get to Virginia coach Brian O'Connor today on the baseball america college podcast we're excited to welcome in virginia coach brian o'connor uh coach it's uh it's good to have you here it's good to be talking baseball and i'm sure from your perspective after you know a long spring slash summer of of uncertainty and, and offseason and, and all the rest of that it's good for you uh to be able to get back out on the field like you guys have been
2: well that's for sure teddy i'll i'll, I'll say this thanks first of all thanks for having me and um you know I, I i'm i'm excited just to be talking this morning talking baseball this morning uh, first and foremost so that's great and um you know it's i'm excited because our students are back here at UVA our players are back um uh, we're we're in a great situation that we can expand more on teddy but um you know we have we have we have practice this afternoon uh, we've been our veterans have been back for 5 weeks now uh, have been working out practicing and then our rookies arrived two weeks ago and moved into the dorm so we actually started full fall baseball uh, about ten days ago and so we're we're off and running our, our fall season will wrap up October 18th uh, so we're doing great we're you know scrimmaging every Friday Saturday Sunday practicing Tuesday through Thursday and and uh, you know we're just we're excited to be out on the field excited to uh, the guys developing and developing our team and getting better and um, you know so it's been a lot of fun
0: We'll uh, let's go back to 2020 for a second here to kind of set the stage for for the fall and for 2021. You guys were off to a, a good start to to the 2020 season prior to the, the cancellation, and you had just won your first ACC series uh, the last weekend before the season was canceled. What, um, what what did you see that was exciting you about the uh, the the way that team had gelled and was playing at that at that time of year?
2: Well, Joe, I tell you, um, I, I had a really positive feeling about last year. You know, we opened up the season, as you know, down in uh, down in Florida, where we played a three game series with Oklahoma, and uh, went one and two down there. Um, I, I think everybody through the first part of the season got an understanding of how talented Oklahoma's pitching staff was. So that was a great challenge for us right out of the gate, and a great weekend for us. And and uh, you know, from that weekend, I saw our team continue to build and build and uh, started to build some pitching depth that I really like to see, uh, you know, that, that last weekend. Uh, Nate Savino, the, the mid-year transfer left-hander uh, out of high school, uh, made a start on Sunday against NC State and, and pitched uh, the deepest he had pitched so far that year, so I was, encouraged, I was encouraged by that. and I was just really encouraged by, you know, the development of our young players, uh, Max Codier, our second baseman, who was a freshman last year, Chris Newell. You just started to see now the games had started to pile up a little bit, and you'd started to see their development and their emergence. Uh, you know, I started to see a guy like Mike Vassell in his second year with us really start to uh, start to emerge a little bit, which was, uh, which was good to see. So, you know, a number of bright spots. I really felt like coming out of that first ACC weekend against NC State, and I thought NC State had a really good club. Uh, you know, I just thought we had some really good positive momentum going, and thought we were off to having a great year last year. But you know, like everybody else, it was cut short, and and uh, we never got to see what that team could be.
1: Obviously, it's uh, you mentioned being in the fall now, and it's such a unique situation for all college baseball coaches, given this the way the spring ended, and now the roster situation, and, and you're in a position where you've got a lot of guys coming back and you're bringing in another talented class. And I'm curious how you and your coaches are approaching this fall and, and trying to kind of sort through all that and, and trying to get, you know, uh, make the fall count as best it can to be able to figure out um, what you're going to be looking at come spring.
2: Well, that, Joe, that's great. That's a great question. Um, you know, we put a lot of thought we all, we all had as college coaches a, a lot of time to, to think about this and digest this of how this is going to work and try to you know, predict some different scenarios. And and so what what, what I ultimately decided was that um, we were going to try to get our guys back as soon as our university would allow them to be back. Uh, about half of our guys played uh, somewhere in the summer for a period of time. About half of them did not. Um, that had to do with where their, their locale was and what their them and their families felt comfortable with. But, um, you know, our, our university committed to actually bringing our veteran players back uh, two and a half weeks before classes even started. Uh, so we brought our, all of our veterans back, which we have a, a quite a few veteran players. Uh, al- almost everybody returned from last year's team. Every starting player on the field and on the pitching staff that pitched a considerable amount, every one of those guys is back on this year's club. Um, so we brought them back, tested, gave them all COVID tests, uh, in-depth physicals. Uh, that all went great so they were actually allowed to start practicing on their own and using our facility we could not coach them as coaches cuz we hadn't started classes yet uh, so they had a couple of weeks of, of workouts together you know the pitchers building up their their arms and things like that and then uh, classes started so we started workouts with them right away uh, so we've been at it with the veteran the veterans have been at it for about 5 weeks and then our, our our rookies came in a couple weeks ago and we we ramped up right away so you know, Joe, I, I feel really good about where we're at. Uh, you know, our, uh, it showed when our guys returned that they had they had taken COVID as an opportunity. You know, Joe, I, I really believe players, individual players and teams had choices when we went into this COVID time. You know, we could all sit around on the couch and feel sorry for ourselves. Or I happen to challenge our guys and tell them that, you know, whenever in your career have you had an opportunity to really strength train and condition and work on your body physically and your individual skills for a four or five month period? Never in their time have they had the opportunity to do that. So I challenge them to capitalize on it. And I'll tell you, we got guys when they, when they showed back up for their physicals, we, had, we got some guys that look really, really good and are in great shape. Uh, fortunately we've, we've been in a, since we've been going for five weeks, we've really avoided the injury situation. I'm knocking on wood here as we talk, but, um, I I love the position we're in. Um, you know, you, you, bring up a great question though, that's the challenge of, you know, you have all these veteran guys returning and you have a group of, we have 11 uh, freshmen that have joined us, no transfer players, just 11 uh, new freshmen. And so you enter them in the mix. So we've got 38 guys on our club. I, I feel that's very, very manageable for us. Um, so we're our, our innings are starting to mount up in our scrimmage. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to play as many games as possible because our guys lost that development time last spring. The high school kids lost it with their team. So we're trying to play as many games and simulate situations as we possibly can and so far so good it's going great the competition is outstanding Uh, we have position player wise we have enough position players to field two teams on the field without dhs so everybody's getting full at bats nobody's sitting out we're not having to we don't we have the absolutely right amount of guys for us to uh, develop and and get out of it what we need to
0: so what uh what what kind of things are you looking for for them to, you know, are there position battles that you're excited about this fall, or is it just you're you're looking to just see what everyone has, um, you know, to this fall? What what what's getting you excited about the fall ball?
2: Well, I'll tell you, Teddy, it's it's um it's it's really twofold. Uh, is you have the the development piece, which is so vital right? These guys lost out on all these games last spring. And, you know, you, you can develop guys with practice, high quality practice, and, and the, in the other development piece is the play in the games, right? And so uh, I'm excited because I think we have a really good plan of comboing those two things where, uh, where they can get both. So first and foremost, right, these guys need to get better, Right, they need to get better in, in in certain areas from the development standpoint, and then then there's the competition, right? There's some really really great competition going on, and we're not alone in that, right? You you look at all these programs across the country that had so many veteran players returning. I'm sure their fall balls are the same. It's really really highly competitive. So, um, I, I I you know I we got so we got some great battles going on out there from the pitching staff standpoint, right? We're you know, we're, every weekend we're running out six different starters that are all competing for opportunities. Uh, there's enough guys in the bullpen that are getting their work. And then essentially there's competition at every, every spot out on the field. So again, there's a development piece that they got to get better at and, and improve. And then the the competition part, you know, I, I look at um, the, the guys that are that are sophomores, the second year players in these programs, you know, you, you, you're talking about you know, guys that that you all know the names of, right? Chris Newell and 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 Max Codier, guys guys like that that came in, made significant impacts last year in a shortened season, and have proven that they're highly talented, high caliber players, right? But they, you know, they missed out on seventy five percent of their games last year, right? So there's a lot that they, they didn't they didn't learn about the grind of a college baseball season, like what it's like and what your body feels like at game 45 and 55 and 65. Right. They didn't have that, that, that part of their development. So you're still, you know, in in a certain way, although they, those kind of guys have been around a year, they still haven't played for a year. So there's that part of it too, that you're trying to advance them and uh, the way that they play the game and the way they, they they compete handle situations that is important in their development as well
1: one guy you mentioned earlier is nate Sabino, and he's got an interesting story as a a guy who came in early for you guys and then in in the in the window that he had in, in 2020 showed well like you mentioned i'm curious how you approach not him necessarily specifically but just in general with anyone who would want to do what he did and come in early you know how you Evaluate whether or not that player is prepared for that and is willing to, or is is able to handle that, and also if you evaluate that player any differently when they come in, and they start practice, just to make sure that hey, this kid is actually ready to handle this high level Division One, versus hey, maybe he just needs some time to kind of uh, sit back and and soak it all in a little bit before he's ready to get out there.
2: Well, Joe, you you bring up a great question. I'll, I'll I'll say this first and foremost, you know, big picture conceptually about the whole idea. I am not at all personally an advocate of this unless the player really, really wants to do it. Okay. First and foremost, that has to be the case because I'll tell you it it, it is an adjustment, right? It sure is coming in the middle of the year. Uh, I think it's a little bit different if they're there for the whole year, but somebody that comes mid year, it's it's a challenge because everything that you learn throughout the fall and then all of a sudden you report, uh, to campus right in the middle of J- January and essentially you have five weeks to prepare for a college baseball season. So in no way is it easy. So uh, in Nate Savino's case, you know, he was uh, pounding my door down wanting to do this. And so he had a strong desire to do it. So that's got to be there first and foremost. And secondly, I don't, personally, I don't think it works unless you as a college baseball coach actually think they're going to c- really contribute to their, your organization right away. Otherwise, I think it's a detriment to them. So Nate Savino was a rarity in that—that his skill level was so high that I knew that he could make an immediate impact for us, and that's why, you know, shortened season for everybody. A guy like him, I I really think he would have been off to the races and had a great uh, first year for us. Um, So, you know, I think it's—I think it's a good thing to do if they really know what they're getting into, and that. You really feel like they can uh, make some kind of impact uh, to your program. So fortunately, unfortunately, because of COVID, it got cut short for Nate. But I really feel because he, and his heart and his gut, wanted to do it. I really feel like it was the right thing for him to do. He looks great, Joe. He, uh, you know, he his his physically, he looks the best I've ever seen him look. Um, he he worked incredibly hard in the in the during COVID. And uh, I, I'm really excited about where he's at at this point in time.
0: You mentioned Savino was beating down your door to, to enroll early. You've had other guys, you know, kind of formally pull their name out of the draft. Kyle Teal did that this year. Uh, and other guys maybe just set really high numbers to, to get to campus. Like Chris Newell might have done something like that. What is it about your pitch for Virginia that, that resonates so well you know, I know obviously it's a great program. You guys are great coaches. You have a great school to sell. but what what is it that you think you know resonates with these kids that they want to be a part of this?
2: Uh, well, that's that, that's a good that's a good question, Teddy. I don't I'm not quite sure that I know. you know, um, obviously, we're proud of of what uh, we've done here and and offer young people, but, in any of those situations, um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's our pitch because I, I don't so-called make a pitch to them. Um, in all of those cases, whether you're talking about Kyle Teal or, or others, um, them and their family have made those decisions that they feel that that is what's best for them at that point in time in their career. And everybody makes individual Uh, decisions as many players as we've had do that we've had just as many that have signed and not enrolled here right Um, so it goes both ways and I'm just a believer first and foremost just like I talked about the mid-year player you know uh, a a young person has to really believe that this college baseball is the right avenue for them and they can't have any uh, second guessing about that right and otherwise it's not going to work And so, um, I share that with them that whatever it is that you decide, you got to really believe in your heart and gut that it's the right thing for your development as a baseball player and as a person, it's what you want to do. We've just been fortunate to, uh, you know, find a handful of young, young men, young players and, and families that, um, that believe that's the right direction for them, right or wrong. That's what they have chosen. And, um, you know, uh, fortunately, it's, it's worked out in, in most of the cases.
1: You mentioned having so much of the, the 2020 team back on, on campus ready for 2021. And I, one guy I would imagine you weren't 100% sure about at a lot of points was Andrew Abbott until the draft passed. And, yeah. uh, you know, lo and behold, the draft passes and Andrew Abbott is uh, still in a Virginia uniform. I have to imagine you and your staff felt a little bit like you'd won the lottery when you realized that uh, you were getting an Andrew Abbott back to the program.
2: Well, yes and no, Joe. I mean, I appreciate you bringing that up. I got to tell you, I was devastated for Andrew Abbott. I really was. I was really incredibly disappointed. Um, Sure, coming out of it, is it a positive for Virginia baseball and the 2021 team? Absolutely. I'd be crazy to say that you wouldn't want the kid back, right? But there was part of me that did not either. And, uh, and I, I was crushed for the young man because I, I felt like uh, his talent and his ability uh, dictated him uh, uh, going in a certain area. It, did, it didn't work out. And sometimes you guys have, have a vast amount of ex- experience in this. You know that sometimes it just doesn't work out, right? It's a puzzle piece that, that, that these clubs are trying to put together. And, and that was the case for Andrew. So I was, you know, I was heartbroken for him you know, that, um, you know, he had worked so hard, he'd actually graduated from Virginia in three years. So he was actually done with his undergraduate education. Uh, But these things happen. We all have a lot of experience in it. Uh, After a few days passed, uh, Andrew and I met and and he chose to look at it a different way and look at it as an opportunity um, and so he's, he's excited to be back here. He's getting, he's working towards his graduate degree. He'll have his graduate degree, um, after the end, end of this year with still another year of eligibility left. Right. Um, but, um, you know, you guys really happy to know we're, we're working with him really hard on being a starter. He's been starting since we started this fall. He's uh, working really hard on his change up. He looks fantastic. He was up to 95 miles an hour the other night in the scrimmage and, um, just, um, Ecstatic about having him back, at, you know, a big plus for our club a, from a winning standpoint this spring. But, um, you know, I'm just excited about his development and where he's looking at right now.
0: When we look at the pitching in 2021, I mean, you look at Abbott, you look at Savino, you look at Fassel, you know, plenty of other guys are back. And uh, that, that part looks very deep. But the lineup also looks very exciting. What do you look at offensively uh, with this club that, that you're looking forward to?
2: well i'll I'll say this i i I'm really, really excited about this offensive club as excited as I've been in a number of years and 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 you you guys know that that part of that excitement comes from experience, right? I mean there there's there's two things there's there's talent and there's experience, right and and uh, you know there there's there's a high, high value in, in in the experience category. and we've got a lot of it on this club. i you look at a depth chart on our team. And uh, every guy that played in a starting capacity for us position player-wise is back. Every one of them. And then we had guys that were not in a starting capacity and spots started for us like, you know, Christian Holinka that hit a bunch of home runs and Jimmy, Jimmy Sullivan that wasn't a starter for us and hit hit some home runs for us last year. So there is, you know, there is really, really high quality depth that I'm uh, I'm ecstatic about there's some significant prospects on there. Uh, but, but, um, and, and I feel like from an offensive standpoint, there's, there's versatility, you know, there's guys that can hit the ball in the ballpark. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of speed on the club too. Uh, you know, with guys like Nick Kent and Chris Newell and uh, Max Cody, and and uh, Mark LeBrew and guys like that, that can run. But then there's a number of guys that can hit the ball in the ballpark. So, um, I'm excited. There's some really good depth, and in, in some of these rookies that have shown up. Uh, that uh, is going to give us some really really good options from them from them as well. And you know, and as you guys know, nobody knows how the spring looks, right? I mean, we don't know. It's quite possible we might play, be playing four league games in a weekend and be playing double headers, right? Um, I'm not suggesting anything, but like, if you look at the, the MLB as any kind of model of what's been having to happen, right? So I I think depth overall position player wise and pitching is going to be a real key for teams moving into the spring. If you really want to compete for a championship.
1: For, uh, for listeners who, who don't know, uh, Brian O'Connor's likeness is used on the, uh, Road to Omaha statue outside of TD Ameritrade Park, formerly set outside of of Rosenblatt Stadium. Coach, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you found out about that when they went to build that statue, how you kind of learned that your likeness would be used for that, and how long it took before you got used to the idea that you existed in statue form because I imagine that's kind of a weird thing to get used to, especially as a younger guy when that first happens.
2: Yeah, uh, Joe, I'm going to hold this against you forever for bringing this up. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, no, it's, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a lot's been made of it in our trips to Omaha. and uh, You know, hey, it's cool. I'm proud of it, Joe. It's, um, you know, uh, my father um, who lives back in Council Bless, Iowa, uh, you know, actually, Owned a company in Omaha that um, uh, manufactured marble, granite uh, type products, um, and so he actually was contracted uh, by the uh, uh, by the NCAA to help build this statue outside of uh, of Rosenblatt Stadium. Uh, it's a statue that now exists in front of TD, but it was uh, it was out in front of Rosenblatt for for years. And uh, so what happened was he, he made the foundation of it, but what happened was they, they had to hire a sculptor uh, for the sculpture that exists, the celebration photo of the, of the players there. Um, so as the story goes, the sculptor had, who was working on the project with my father reached out to my father and asked him, you know, hey, I know your son played baseball. Do you have any celebration photos of his face? Uh, because I would like to make one of the faces uh, the likeness of, of your son. So that's what happened. Um, and that's it, right? And a lot's to be made of a little bit. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's cool, Joe, I, I you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it, because, you know, here, my father, you know, took me and my two brothers to practically every College World Series game growing up, you know, it was a 10 minute drive for us across the river to go to the games. I mean, I could show you the, the programs I have at home at my parents' house of, you know, um, uh, programs of the College World Series signed by players and coaches, you know, from the, from the seventies when I was a youngster growing up. Right. And so that event is just, just always very, very special uh, to me. Uh, I was back in Omaha in July for, for two weeks and, you know, purposely went over there a couple of times. I just, you know, it's, uh, I grew up on it and very, very fond of it. And so that's the story. And it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of cool. So the players have had some fun with it over the years. And uh, I try to uh, uh, downplay it as much as possible.
0: (laughs) Speaking of Omaha, we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of that Creighton team. And, you know, this year was a, a tough year. For Omaha, overall, with the cancellation of the World Series and the swim trials and everything else that, that has been going on, uh, you know, what what do you get the sense of? You know, is going on in in, in that community, and, and, and how how important is it? Do you think that that you know it comes back next year and, and everyone's able to celebrate uh, the, the the return of the College World Series?
2: Well, I. Um you know, like I said, I was back there in July for two weeks visiting my parents, and uh, you know it was a ghost town, which every town was right at that time, right. And so walking around the TD Ameritrade and um, you know actually went into the went into the Blatt, and uh, and had a sandwich. Uh, actually, did a did a podcast, uh, a, a Zoom, uh, actually Zoom meeting from the blatt from up top from that bar up there looking down in the stadium. So that was pretty cool. I had the opportunity, uh, to do that there with our donor, our donor base for Virginia baseball. I did it out there in Omaha from the so That was cool. But, you know, um, it, uh, it was tough, you know, it's tough for everybody. I was actually, I, I don't know if Kyle Peterson had thrown it out, but somebody had thrown it out about when the blue Jays were looking for a home boy would have been great to, for them to play their games in TD Ameritrade. But, um, you know, I, I, I just, I, I hope, I pray that we can get through this. We can find a way to have a substantial college baseball season. I really believe that we will. Um, it might not look as normal as the past, but I bo- really believe we will. And I really believe that, so- that we'll be back in Omaha uh, playing, playing a championship. Uh, it's so important, as you know, Teddy, for that community, uh, what it does for two weeks for the city of Omaha. And the infrastructure that has been built there, to host it the the hotels that are around there the restaurants and everything it's it's a significant impact so i'm i'm hopeful we can get things back and 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 rolling and really believe that we will and 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 we'll look forward to that
1: so one more last a little bit silly question for you and that's uh and you mentioned uh you know eating and eating a sandwich and so uh, we're curious whether it's, uh, some specific example or something you're building your own on your own in your head. Describe Brian O'Connor, your favorite sandwich.
2: Oh, it, it doesn't take me long at all. It's a steak sandwich, um, mm. <laughs> preferably outrageous. from Omaha, but, um, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's a steak sandwich. I'm bo- uh, born and raised on, you know, steak and potatoes and corn and, and stuff uh, out there in Iowa. So, uh, it, w- it doesn't take me long to know uh, that that would certainly be uh, uh, be my sandwich of, of choice for sure. Don't get it very often, really don't ever really have it here in Charlottesville, but that would be uh, my choice if I could put one together, that would uh, certainly be the case.
1: Is so there anything specific, like with the, the trimmings on the steak sandwich, or is it do you just try to, try to keep it simple?
2: You know, just onions. You know, uh, really, uh, on a nice ho on a nice hoagie, um, you can you can get them at the ballpark there at, uh, at TD for sure. Um, you know, I remember them back from when uh, I had them at, at Rosenblatt. So um, that would certainly be it for me for sure. Just just some onions. That's it.
0: I don't know what you was talking about. That's our most serious question of the podcast.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I disparaged it by calling it silly. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Well,
0: Coach, we uh, we really appreciate you taking the time here today. Uh, it was uh, it was good to, like you said, just to to talk baseball, and and uh, it's exciting to see uh, your teams get back out on the field, like yourselves, and and we're just very excited to see uh, Virginia. Hopefully, we can uh, see you guys uh, out there and, and competing and. And getting after it this spring.
2: Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, Teddy. And Me, me too. I know all of our, I obviously talked to a num- number of our, my colleagues across the country and, you know, actually just had a long hour long conversation last night with Paul Maneri and checking in on, see how they're doing things and what the future looks like. And, you know, everybody's hopeful. You know, hopefully we can uh, just continue to get great workouts in here and people can across the country and continue that development process. And whatever the season looks like in the spring, I just pray that we're out there playing and, and uh, we can hopefully uh, see everybody in Omaha.
0: Absolutely. We'll, we'll look for you there.
2: Okay, that sounds great. Thanks, Daddy. Appreciate it, Joe.
0: Thank you again to Virginia coach Brian O'Connor for joining us today on the baseball America college podcast. Uh, Joe, always good to hear from coach O'Connor, uh, one of the the great, uh, minds in the sport, I think right now, and just one of the great coaches overall, if you're putting together a, uh, you know, a, a top active coaches in college baseball, uh, he would be close to the, to the top of that list. And he's got the who's, Ah, uh, in position to make a lot of noise in 2021. I really like what they have. I think they're the ACC favorites, and you know, to hear him talk about the pitching staff uh, and the position players that they have next year, you know, really just kind of solidifies that status in my mind right now.
1: Yeah, they're gonna. I mean, they're just gonna be really, really good, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to see it. Um, really looking forward to seeing it. I, I was looking at their stat sheet and roster kind of in in preparation and then since the interview um, just kind of thinking about what they're going to have in 2021. It's amazing to me, you and I, you and I had the conversation at uh, preseason top 25 time before the 2020 season. And we debated Virginia somewhat seriously. I think they probably ended up being 26 or 27, 28, uh, ultimately didn't quite make the cut. And it's funny because a lot of the reasons why you could have made an argument for Virginia being, in that mix in 2020 are now I don't want to say afterthoughts that that's disrespectful that's not really the right way to put it but are really not the headline reasons why you'd advocate for them being let's say a national title contender in 2021 I mean going into last year it was okay we really like Zach Geloff and yes he is still a big part of things he will continue to be a big part of it he's probably the 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 outlier there. But then you look at guys like, you know, we talked about, well, really like Devin Ortiz, you know, he's a nice player. Bryn Rivoli has been there for a while. He's kind of a veteran presence and, you know, um, you know, pitchers, there were pitchers on the roster too that were kind of the same way when you, you look at guys like, you know, Evan Sperling or Chesden Harrington, guys whose, whose names we knew. And then, you know, those guys, some of those guys had outstanding 2020 seasons, but it's less about those guys being, less than and more just that they had a whole new crop of stars emerge in 2020 just in that 18 game window we saw where you Chris Newell just immediately became one of the best hitters in the ACC and Max Cotier had a really good debut season and then on the mound Griff McGarry turned into just kind of a new pitcher in a lot of ways was you know showed showed a, a new side of him Mike Vasquez took a big step forward and then of course a guy like Nate Savino or even a grad transfer in Stephen Schock you know had a really nice season as, as their closer so Um, they go into, you know, they take basically what was a really good 2020 team that we considered being top 25, then they kind of bolted on this uh, outstanding recruiting class plus some guys taking big steps forward, which you heard Coach O'Connor talk about in the interview. And that's how you end up with a 2021 team that, like I said, is going to come into the season on the short list of of national title contenders for sure.
0: Yeah, we have them ranked number five in the never-too-early top 25 they're the top-ranked ACC team. Virginia is not, or excuse me, Louisville is not far behind Virginia. And you know, I, I mean, I think those are the two clear-cut teams. And if you told me that you like Louisville more, like I'm not going to sit here and argue that you're, you're wrong. I, obviously, I, I mean, I've said I, I like Virginia. We have a Virginia ring tire for a reason. But I really like what Louisville has as well. And uh, you know, to see those two teams go at it would be a lot of fun next next spring. Uh, they are each other's um, standing crossover divisional opponents. So I'm sure we'll we'll get a look at what that series looks like, and, and it should just be a fun contest in the ACC. But I'm, you know, I'm very intrigued to see what Nate Savino looks like. You know, we talked a lot there about just kind of the process of getting a player in a semester early. Um, he didn't start the season in their rotation and kind of worked his way there. Uh, but now, having had a full year within the program, what's that going to look like? Um, you know, Chris Newell, how do you, you know, build off of that success? And, you know, there, there are guys like uh, like Nick Kent, Geloff, um, you know, that are approaching the draft. And, you know, it's, it's a big season for them. You know, so what is that going to look like for them? So I, I have a lot of, a lot of interest in what Virginia has in a lot of areas uh, as they approach what should be a really big 2021. But you know, I everyone in college baseball is going to be hungry. You know, that that that's for sure. You get a season taken away from you. I, I don't think anyone's going to, going to not be hungry after that. But I, I do think Virginia has something to prove it's been a while since they've been in the ncaa tournament clearly they were tracking towards it in 20 uh, but these are still players that didn't haven't gotten that experience yet and now uh they're they're going to have an opportunity to not only have an ncaa tournament experience in 2021 but to make a deep run at it and and i think that that's going to be um you know, that's exciting. And, and that's, the, I imagine that's going to be a, a big driving force for for the Cavaliers all spring.
1: One thing that'll really be interesting, too, and this could be an example of a, I mean, a a situation where Brian O'Connor's playing like, you know, 4D chess here. And then secondarily, uh, just how much the embarrassment of riches they have is, is the idea. And, and he mentions it in the interview, and, and he's not the first person to, you know, he, he was obviously careful to say this is not an official thing. This is just a hypothetical. But, you know, the idea of, some of these conferences playing four games in a weekend, including one doubleheader, header is, is very much out there and is, is one possibility to kind of solving for the idea that, uh, you know, there, there might not be as many non-conference games and the season might be compacted by a couple of weeks. And, and um, you know, there they're just, there might be a scenario where they, they need to try to pack in as many games in a weekend as they can. So then, you know, he talks about converting Andrew Abbott to a starting pitcher. And so, you know, you're, you're telling me that, you know, they could have a rotation of Griff McGarry, Mike Vassell, Nate Savino, and Andrew Abbott. And that's, um, you yeah, know, that's pretty good. And it's one of those where if, you know, one or both of those doubleheader games are seven innings, perhaps even better. Because if, you know, you could play that a couple different ways. Like you and I had an off-air conversation about it where after the interview with, with Coach O'Connor about, you know, you could go a couple ways. You could take a Griff McGarry, a guy who's an experienced starter, who's who you know is going to be stretched out. And just kind of do the thing that Navy did with Noah Song, which is is the point you made, where Noah Song basically just threw a complete game every time they played a seven inning game, or you could go the other way and just say, well, we throw Andrew Rabbit and we just really expect him to give us four or maybe five really good innings, as opposed to putting pressure on him to try to give us seven. So they're in a good spot where they can they can really play around with that a little bit. And you know, if it is such that they go to four games a weekend with a double header, I think they're going to be really uniquely positioned to pitch well from
2: beginning to end.
0: I mean, when you just look at that pitch and staff, it was really deep already. um you know I really liked the play of you know I mean the rotation was really good, and then you had Abbott and Steven Shock at the back end, and you could run Abbott out there anytime there was a high leverage situation or you know, you could extend him a couple innings as a bridge, uh, you know, take away the middle innings, you know, basically, and, you know, really just shorten the game. And, you know, they could do that again. They could, you know, the, you heard him say that they're extending Abbott right now. Uh, so he could start, you know, there, there are a number of things they can do. And, and no matter what, how this season unfolds, what shape it takes, Virginia is going to be really well equipped on the mound, just thanks to their depth and the versatility of some of these pieces uh, that that we're talking about to to attack it in in a number of ways. And um, I I, that that's a big part of why I think they're going to be as good as they are. I really don't think their position players should be lost, though. Um, You know, I'm as guilty of you know kind of forgetting how good those guys can be as anyone. Uh, but when you look at what Newell brings, you you look at what what Geloff brings, and you throw in you know a, a Kyle Teal to the mix, we'll see what he looks like as a freshman. I mean, I I just I, I feel like that could be a really special group as well. And um, you know that's it's it's an exciting time in Charlottesville, and you know I I think that you know just overall anywhere you look with this Virginia team, it's it's hard not to be excited and. You know again for for a team that that's been a few years without making the, the tournament as you know an established national power uh, you know we're talking about a team that that played in back to back college World Series finals within the last five or six years whatever that was um, you know that that it, it's that that's pretty significant that they uh, they went through a little bit of that that downturn and and now they've uh they've rebounded and and they're you know, they're ready to, to go out and, and make another another run at a national championship.
1: Yeah, it really feels like they've a little bit – you know, I don't want to make, make it too dramatic, but it really does feel like they've undergone a little bit of a reinvention the last couple of years. And, and the 2021 team might kind of be the, the crest of that. But, you know, it's not just that, that they were they, – they missed regionals a couple of years. And there's a difference. There's some times where, okay, you know, you just kind of graduated – or had a bunch of guys drafted from a particularly good team, and you can kind of see that coming, and, and maybe that's a one-year thing and you bounce back, but, I mean, they're really, those teams that struggled, they really, they really did struggle, and there, there just wasn't as much juice there, and there wasn't as much talent there, and they weren't bad. They just, they weren't really in the mix, and it does feel like, and I don't know that, you know, I don't think you or I either know enough about kind of some of the stuff they were doing as a program to kind of change their course there or enough about the inner workings of what's happening there to really pinpoint it. But it does feel like there has been a little bit of reinvention going on in Charlottesville. And I think what we're seeing now with what we started to see in 2020, and then if at least on paper with the way things look in 2021, I think we're starting to see the product of of whatever it was they were doing to kind of reinvent that program and get going back in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of it is definitely just a matter of getting some more recruits in, and we talked about their success doing that. And you know, O'Connor mentioned like that they've also obviously lost recruits, and I mean that happened. And you know, if that happens, and then a couple guys, you know, go through injuries or or performances don't meet the initial expectations, you know, that snowballs on you all of a sudden. And and I think that's kind of the start of what happened there. But you know, to to be able to rebound from that quickly. Uh, is impressive, and you know that's uh, that's what Virginia went out and and, and has done here. So uh, we're excited to see them in uh, in the next season, and uh, we'll we'll see where the Cavs go from here. But my expectation is that we're going to be talking a lot about Virginia over the next year, leading up to uh, to the College World Series next June. So Joe, you have been working all summer. On a project that we called StockWatch, you were going through conference by conference and looking uh, at at each team and in each conference over the last five years. Typically, we would do this just on a one-year sample. You know what what happened in a program in a given year or season, uh, but with the short season, we decided to take a step back and kind of open it up a little further. And so you. Uh, you completed that last week. Uh, I believe the Sun Belt was, was the, the last of the 31 conferences that uh, you finished up. You can read through them all over at BaseballAmerica.com. But having now taken a pretty granular look at all 31 conferences, all 300-plus teams, um, you, uh, I imagine you learned some things along the way.
1: Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, yeah, you know, 31 up 31 down at the beginning of this project. It's one of those uh, looks like an insurmountable mountain to climb, but here, you know, here we are, we made it. Um, and then, you know, they get easier as time goes on because you kind of get the the formula down a little bit, but yeah, if, if, if you're listening and maybe you're not as much of a reader to baseball America, but you're listening to our podcast, I, I would really urge you, obviously I'm biased because I worked on them, but I, I would really urge you to go back and, and read some of these, at least on your, your favorite teams and, and conferences, because, Uh, It's really kind of neat what you find out and you find out kind of at the same time that 2015 uh, Feels like a long time ago, you know, because that's still incorporated. So these data sets were 2015 to 2019 results So 2020 is not included and uh, 2015 feels like a long time ago Especially if you're a program that had a lot of success in 2015 and hasn't had so much uh, just uh, since then so there were times where you know, you, you, your expected outcome is, is one team to be higher or lower. And then you find out, well, it's because 2015 was the outlier season and that's been a long time ago now. And so that was always kind of an interesting little, uh, little trick there, but, um, yeah, so go, I would urge you to go check those out because they're really kind of cool snapshots of, of history. And I had a lot, I had a lot of fun doing them. Honestly, some were, more confounding than others. And there were some where you write it up and you look at the standings and you look at the results and you go, yep, that's kind of exactly how I imagined this would go. And there were some that really did kind of surprise me and we'll get to some of those surprises here in a little bit, but there were a couple of, of lessons I learned um, along the way. And you know, with, and I tried on these lessons learned to not get too, too granular and really focus in on a certain conference or program and really try to look at overarching themes. And one of them, and we've talked about this in regards to the SEC, specifically when we talk about, for example, Alabama's recruiting classes and how it's a good recruiting class, but it's 11th in the SEC or what have you, and just how hard it is to climb up out of the cellar of that conference. But what I really learned is that that's actually, that's actually really true across all of the power conferences, save for the Big Ten to a certain degree. But if you're talking about those other four that we think of the, the traditional power conferences, that um, it's really hard to climb out of those the cellars. And to that end, there aren't really that many in the power conferences. There aren't really many programs that you would consider just truly downtrodden at this point. Um, You know, there there were very few power programs in those four conferences that hadn't been to regionals in the last five years. There were just a handful of them. So there's that metric. Um, But I think it also just shows that, that as we've discussed before, just about everyone in these major conferences is trying in baseball. Now everybody wants to win now. that. That sounds really Elementary, but it wasn't that long ago that you really couldn't say that for everybody in these major conferences. But so I was really kind of surprised by how few programs there are that are just really have been on hard times, and you can you can spot some of them. I mean, Washington State in the Pac-12, and and perhaps that's changing with Brian Green, but it's been a long time since they've been up. But you know, in the Big 12, it was the Kansas schools; neither of them had been to a, a regional in the last five years. Of course, the the thing there is that. Kansas went in 14 and K-State hosted in 13. So it really hadn't been that long for even those, uh, you know, Alabama for the SEC and Missouri obviously um, are, you know, kind of classified there, but, you know, Alabama had a good run at the end of, uh, you know, the Mitch Gaspard era. I mean, they were still a really quality team uh, and, you know, Missouri's on the upswing. So that was something. And then you, you compare it to the mid and low major conferences and really without fail, in those conferences, there are always one or two programs that just are not competitive. You know, they're winning 25, 30, 33% of their conference games. And in the previous five years, they haven't been over 500 in conference play at all. And, and there, there were one or two of those in just about every mid and low major conference. And some of that is just because you get more variety and a bigger disparity between the good teams and the bad teams in those smaller conferences. But I think some of it too, is just that, you know, you don't, you don't have the buy-in on baseball in those conferences as well. So that was, um, that was one of my biggest takeaways. It's just the degree to which there are, everyone cares in the major conferences about college baseball and that if you're, if you're down and there, there aren't that many of them, but if you're down, it is very hard to get back up because there really isn't anybody looking to see any ground to you. So you, you almost really have to just do it yourself and, and scratch and claw your way, your way there. So uh, that was interesting to me. Another one, just quickly. I, so one of the things I, I wanted to have happen actually with this project was I wanted to have some of my assumptions proven wrong. Um, because I think if, if if I could get something out of this like it would be that when I looked when I took a look at five years of data in these conferences that's something I previously thought at the very least I challenged myself on maybe it's not that I was proven wrong, but maybe it's just that I had to consider it a different way and I we've talked about it a little bit in regards to the Big West so I won't get back into that but the Big West was a conference that kind of challenged me to think about my preconceived notions but one of the other ones were a couple of the conferences I did towards the end. One is Conference USA, another one is the Southland Conference, and to a certain degree, the Sunbelt. You know, realignment was a big topic in these stock watches because realignment has been a big topic in college athletics during that time. And so oftentimes one of the big overriding themes in these was how has this conference dealt with realignment? And in some cases, like the WAC, for example, it's a completely different conference than it was even five or six years ago. Uh, Some less so, obviously, but then you have a couple of conferences in, in conference USA, for example, that, you know, I've kind of gone around saying like, I think, you know, conference USA might've been as harmed as any conference in America from a baseball standpoint. When you think about the mass realignment that we had back in 2013, 2014, and I don't doubt that they've lost something. You can't lose programs like Tulane, Houston, East Carolina, Etc. and come out on the other end, a better conference. That's just, that's not the reality. But I was actually kind of surprised that it really wasn't as sharp as I thought. And I kind of thought that I would look at conference, you would say, and say, yeah, that's a, it's a conference on the decline and, and realignments the reason why and maybe they're a step back because they lost those programs, but you know, they got four teams in the regionals as recently as 2016. Um, that was after all that realignment happened. And when you consider how good a team like Florida Atlantic has been and, and filling in part of that void, I think that has something to do with it. So um, that was kind of interesting to me because I kind of expected to write a little more on conference USA, but I was coming at it from the standpoint of thinking that, Hey, I'm going to look at this conference as a conference on decline on the decline. And while it may be to a certain degree um, it wasn't, as much as I thought. And I thought there was going to be maybe an opportunity for me to, to write this big overarching story about, you know, how realignment harmed this league. And I just didn't know if I believed it by the end. So that was interesting to me. And I, the Southland was another conference like this. And, you know, there was a time when the Southland felt like a conference on the rise, you know, Sam Houston, obviously a super regional team, Southeastern, Southeastern Louisiana was always on the cusp of, of regionals. And the Southland was challenging to get two teams into regionals with regularity. And it seems like that has happened, you know, that has happened less now the last couple of years. It felt like that has tapered, but it took me doing these to kind of realize that, well, actually all of that has come after their big realignment. So you would have thought that maybe this was something that the Southland had happened to them before realignment. And then it fell off after, and that wasn't the case at all, actually, you know, all that whole uh, roller coaster there happened post realignment. So I can't blame that on realignment. So that was another, um, you know, that was another conference where I had to kind of readjust my, my prior understanding of it. And so, you know, it's it's a topic you and I have talked about quite a bit, but I think in, to, to the extent that we think about those conferences and think about the fact that they felt like maybe on the rise at one point and now not so much, you know, I think we can contribute as much as anything else contribute that to Attribute that to, pardon me, to just the idea that mid and low majors in college baseball are, are are continually marginalized and will probably continue to be marginalized and less on, you know, less on the idea that they lost some of their best teams and now they're just in a weakened state. That may be true to a certain degree, but it's certainly not true to the degree I thought it was coming into this project.
0: Well, I would push back on that to an extent now this may seem to some people like semantics but they are like conference usa definitely is weaker you can't take the schools i mean they had louisville (laughs) like imagine if they still have louisville Um, but what's happened to to my view more than anything is just that the the power is increasingly concentrated in five to six if you depend on how you want to view the american conferences and the the five have all expanded and what i guess the, the big 12 contracted but overall like those those conferences are larger today the, the membership of that that five conference group is larger today than it was 10 years ago and as a result they're getting more teams into the postseason now is that happening just because there are more of them or is that happening because they're truly that much better and other conferences are weaker like that requires a a much larger examination but just those conferences becoming larger definitely is a negative for the southland and for conference usa what is also interesting is to look at hosts and you know so if you go back and you think about Conference USA's like heyday with Rice winning everything. Um, you know, Rice was pretty consistently hosting and now Conference USA teams, you know, Southern Miss hosted within this span. You looked at it more recently than I did, but I feel like Southern Miss won like 25 to 27 Conference USA games that year it was something insane. Yeah, maybe it was 24 or 25. It was a lot. and you know, to to host as a Conference USA team and do something less than that, like, I, I wonder how how viable that is today. Um, so in those ways, they're kind of getting marginalized. And I think in those ways, it's as a result of, of losing some of these teams. But, I mean, to your point, not that long ago, they had four teams in. Now, that was in a very weird year. That 2016 is the year that nobody west of the Mississippi hosted. Um, and a lot of goofy things happen, like the Pac-12 was a two bid league, a three bid league, maybe. So you know, if things like that happen that opens up spots, and um, you know, maybe that's what it takes to get four teams in, or maybe it, there's just some you know variation here. And you know, some years Conference USA is going to be bigger and and going to get more more bids, and I don't know. That I'll be interested to see what happens as the sample grows. Uh, because right now it is a relatively small, uh, you, you know, sample. And, and maybe there is just some some variation going on here that, that's a little more random than anything else. I mean, 56 games is a lot of games, but it's also not that many games. Uh, you know, so teams can get hot. One injury can make a huge deal on a season, particularly for a team, say in the Southland, which uh, presumably is going to have less depth than some of their, the the major schools that they're competing against.
1: Yeah, I think um, and I think that's a good point. I think that there just hasn't been enough time to really fully consider the effects of that just because, um, you know, let's say that, you know, this is getting a little bit further into the weeds than it probably even needs to, but let's say we're in a scenario where a team like, FAU, for example, is trending down as they move into Conference USA instead of trending up, and all of a sudden you're looking at well, it's Southern Miss, and you know once Rice kind of falls off, it's just Southern Miss. But FAU has kind of given them that partner to kind of at least guarantee, all but guarantee, CUSA two bids in a given year. So I think we need to maybe see that trend over over ten years as opposed to as opposed to to five. So I think it. Um, the other thing though is that uh, this I think is a good lesson in in how sometimes your, you know, perception of the facts have a lot to do with your prior assumption coming in. And that's that I think the truth of the matter is that these leagues have been hurt by realignment and losing, you know, some of the powers. We talked about the teams that, that conference USA lost, just to give the context, the Southland lost Texas state, uh, UTSA, most notably, those are, are two programs who have gone on, um, in the Sunbelt for Texas State's case and Conference USA for UTSA's case um, have gone on to be quality programs in those conferences. They weren't they weren't outmatched when they moved. And those so those are the, the losses there. And so I, I think I kind of went into it thinking that we were going to have this tidy, really tidy narrative of these programs were, in Conference USA's case, was a steady, you know, basically what the American is now, a steady conference just slightly below a power conference Teams that could host, teams that could conceivably get to Omaha, teams that have been to Omaha. Um, and in the Southlands case, hey, a conference on the rise, you've got a couple of, of these mid major programs that have kind of elevated themselves. And then, uh oh, realignment comes along. And now all of a sudden it sidetracks both of these leagues. I kind of came into it expecting that would be a little bit of a tidy narrative and like an easy thing to kind of really latch onto. And then when I went into it, that might still be true to some degree. But I was expecting it to be much simpler than that. And then to find out that it wasn't quite that simple, uh, you know, made it to where it probably feels to me a little more, a little more extreme in the other direction that, you know, maybe I'm now overcorrecting a little too much and saying that it's, it's maybe less of an effect than it, than it really is. So, um, but that's, that's kind of the point I was making at the, at the beginning, though, is that I set out to do this to to one, just because I thought it'd be kind of a fun thing to do and interesting. And it was those things. But also I, I really kind of wanted to to find out some things that challenged what I previously thought. And, and certainly in the cases of, of those two conferences. And like I said, to a certain degree, the Sun Belt, which is a similar story, um, you know, th- th- those conferences did that for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's uh, always good to, you know, try and challenge, the, the common perception or, or your own perception, so uh, an interesting uh, look at it there i mean the when you when you dive into all of these um, you know especially some of the, the smaller leagues, it's interesting to see how the the trend lines develop and um, you know you you can see a lot of things within a five year snapshot uh, at least within a a, a conference uh, and you know i it's always interesting to me to see. Uh, you know, how some of these things, how far some of these things have come in 2015. Just when, when you look at, you know, which conf- which teams end up at the top of your five-year standings, um, you know, sometimes you get some surprises there and, and other times it, it, you know, it is just a, you know, Oral Roberts in the Summit League situation where they are just kind of unquestioned the best team.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was, that's kind of the other thing is that, The Probably the most fun I had in this project was after I went through and compiled the five-year records, um, which was not the easiest thing to do, by the way. uh, To to all, anybody who works as a, kind of in the sports information realm at the conference level, uh, shout out to those that had like a media guide or year-by-year standings, like very easy to access. And the ones who don't, like, woof, that was rough. Like some conferences, I was having to go to the individual team pages. And then if the team had recently switched their website vendor from, you know, one vendor to another, like they might not have that much. You might not be able to just hit the drop down on schedule and go back to 2015. So at that point I was having to like try to find a media guide. And if they didn't have a media guide, there were actually times where what I would have to do to get a record for a team five years from 2015 was go to another conference team, figure out who that team played in the last series of the season click on the box score to get the record of that team from the last game of the season. That's how I had to find out some of these in very, very few cases. So anyway, that was, that was a little chore there, but the most fun I had in the, in this project was when I compiled the five year standings and just looked at it because there was always something that stuck out to me. So with that, I have, so I've got this broken up into major conferences, plus some, cause one of them is a big West thing um, and then mid and low major conferences. So there's four of each. So I'm going to read off, we'll start with the power conferences. I'm going to read off the four things that, that stood out to me. I went back through them today. Uh, I'm sure there, there are others I've left on the cutting room floor here, but these are four that really stood out to me on the standings. And you tell me which one surprised you the most or which one doesn't surprise you at all. You can just take it however you want. So, um, Texas finishing sixth in the big 12 in the five year standings, uh, with a, 475 winning percentage. Uh, you know, that's a team that went to Omaha in 2018, so I kind of figured that would insulate them a little bit from that, but I uh, suppose, I guess not. They finished sixth in the Big 12. Uh, most of the Pac-12, under 500 in the last five years. Of the Pac-12 teams, only five finished over 500 in conference play. Uh, East Carolina did win the AAC Five year standings regular season title, but only by a couple games. They did not run away, even though they finished 20 and four in conference in 2019. Um, and then Cal State Fullerton running away with the Big West. Um, you know, obviously, we've talked a decent amount about the Big West uh, on previous episodes, but you know, Fullerton doesn't quite have the iron grip on the Big West it used to, but yet, still in these five year standings, it more or less ran away with the Big West. So, which one of those stands out to you?
0: Uh well I would say the Fullerton it stands out to me that you're surprised by that. Uh they won three or four of those titles. Uh and you know the most consistent team beyond them, I think, would probably be Cal Poly. Um, and they, you know, don't have a title. You know, UCSB maybe uh was a little more up and down, but did have the the bigger the bigger ups. But uh of the of the rest, I would definitely say Texas, uh, because, yeah, I mean, they, they won the Big 12 the year they went to Omaha, and they're Texas. What are they doing finishing sixth? You know, I mean, uh, that, that, is, that is definitely surprising that they would they would be that low. I mean, obviously, this is a sample that captures a very significant run from TCU. This is most of their four straight Omaha years um this is uh texas tech's emergence as a national power not only you know a conference power but a national power uh so those two uh you know being up is is significant uh in in terms of you know big 12 standings but yeah to to get texas to sixth, considering they did win a title in this time uh I, i would say is surprising east carolina's dominance i mean you know, the American standings are often pretty tight, and so I think just to have the one year uh, that ECU did where they were head and shoulders above everyone else in the league, I think is a pretty significant differentiator considering the league standings. Pretty typically, everyone hovers around 500, and then the Pac 12 thing I mean, you see that in the standings year in and year out. I feel like I mean, it, it to see that over a five year period is pretty stark, but. You know, Oregon State did go. This is the team that won 27 conference games. Uh, And then the next year, they won something like 23. And UCLA's had a year or two like that. So um, pretty much everyone else has had some up and down years. So to only have a handful of them be above 500 uh, on its face, a little surprising. But then when you actually, you know, dig into it, I think it becomes like, oh, okay, like I see how we got here. And it's weird that we're here, but I, I, I get it.
1: The second level thing about the Pac-12 that's a little bit surprising is when you look at it in context, typically what I found, and this make, makes sense, uh, you know, typically what I found is that when you you tend to get that kind of, um, well, let me put it this way. It surprised me that there were that few over 500 teams in the Pac-12 in a lot of ways because they also had at the bottom of the standings a couple of teams that have really struggled in Washington State, which won fewer than 30% of its games, and Utah, that although they did win the Pac-12 in 2016, speaking of another weird thing that happened in 2016, they, other than that, had really struggled. So they won like 36% of their games. And typically, what you'd see is when that is the case, Uh, with a couple teams very much at the bottom, you also saw a lot of teams hovering on the good side of 500 because they've just all kind of beaten up on those teams. I think, to your point, what was happening here is that what we actually have when I look at the five-year Pac-12 standings is a lot of teams hovering just under 500 that, yes, they beat up on Washington State and to some degree Utah, but also they were getting beat up on by UCLA and Oregon State. And so that was creating downward pressure. So I just think it's a situation where those teams just all happen to fall, you know, teams like Arizona State and Arizona end up just below 500 as opposed to just above 500. So I think that's kind of what, what happened there. And, th- you know, there's reasons for, like, you can go through all these and you can kind of, you understand the logic there. But, I mean, Texas, that's the point that I, that I was making earlier in that, You know the Big Twelve is relatively relentless, and if you have a down year, like you know, I think Texas had one year where they they were seven and seventeen in the Big Twelve, and when you have that, you know, outside of the the Kansas schools, which had seasons like that, no one else really had seasons like that in the Big Twelve, and so you really do kind of fall down the ladder a little bit when you struggle to to that degree. So, um, okay, so those are the Power Conference ones. Now here, these are really nerdy, like these are some mid and low major ones, and so. Um, here were the ones that that stuck out to me. Some of these are, um, there's one on here. I think people would be very surprised by. So you'll, I think you'll know exactly the one I'm talking about, but anyway, here we go. Um, in the Atlantic sun, Jacksonville comfortably winning the five year standings in the OVC Moorhead state, Jacksonville state finished 92 and 57 tied for first place, Tennessee tech 92 and 58, just a half game out of first place, almost a three-way tie. That's that's not so much surprising as it's just kind of an amazing fun fact that we almost had a three-way tie for first place if using a five-year data sample. Anyway, um, Norfolk State leading the MiAC standings by more than seven percentage points. What? Not, not Bethune-Cookman, not Florida A&M, Norfolk State.
0: I mean, I'm not surprised that it's not a, su- a Southern school, really, because that's, you know... You, you just mentioned two, and then you throw in A&T and the Southern School. There are just too many good schools right. in the South Division. But Norfolk State to be that far ahead, um, yeah, that one – that one's surprising to me right now, obviously.
1: All right. Well, we, we had on a good one there. So this is the last one that I think people, like uh, listeners, might be a little surprised about. Uh, Bryant ran away with the NEC regular season standings. Not a surprise – uh, one I mean, they lost trip. like
0: literally like six weekend series in this whole sample.
1: Yes. Uh, been to the postseason, <laughs> however, just once in the last five years. By comparison, Central Connecticut State has been twice.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm well aware of that because I've written the NEC preview a few times of this. Uh, but yeah, the first of all, Bryant's dominance since joining the conference is truly spectacular. Like if you go in and you like really run through some of the regular season numbers, I'm not making up that six uh, conference series losses. I mean, that is not the exact number, but it is literally something like that. It is insane. But yeah, they can't win the NEC tournament over the last five years. It's, uh, they've had some really good teams. The one team, I think in the sample that, that's being captured is the team uh, that was ultimately a two seed. And there were a lot of people wondering, like, were they going to be, you know, the RPI was like 46 or so. Uh, and people were wondering if they had lost the NEC tournament that year uh, in 2015, like 16, whatever year that was, uh, would they, would they get in as an at-large and the two seed means they probably would have, but um, yet beyond that, they, they haven't been able to do it. And, you know, you, you look at, um, you know in the big leagues right now. James Karinchak, their former ace, has become a a stud reliever for the Indians. They you look at draft results from that conference. Bryant's all over that. And but yeah, I mean, low major conference tournaments, man. They're uh, they're they're a trip. You know, <laughs> like it's it's just a totally different deal when everyone is playing with their season on the line, and you're doing it on a neutral site and yeah, you know, the NEC tournament does have some advantages for its top seed, but clearly not, you know, enough to to insulate uh, from Bryant getting beat by by Central Connecticut State or or Long Island or, or or whoever really.
1: Yeah, the it was interesting to look at Bryant versus Oral Roberts, you know, because Oral it really is kind of impressive that Oral Roberts has kept its grip on the conference uh, when you consider just. Especially since the summit tournament is a four-team Jindig. Uh, so there that really kind of even to a greater degree kind of increases the likelihood of something just wacky happening and Oral Roberts having two bad days and then that's it. Um so that really is kind of impressive. But it was interesting to see that, you know, even Oral Roberts um they, they continue, except for twenty nineteen when Omaha got there. Oral Roberts continues to get to the postseason year after year after year and is the class in that conference. But, you know, it was interesting to see that uh, you know, even they have slipped to a certain degree. I learned that in these stock watches, just the degree to which that's the case. You know, that they, they used to occasionally fight their way up to a, a three seed. If you go back fifteen years or so, they were a two seed at one point. They would typically win a game or two in, in regionals. They used to relatively routinely get to regional finals. They really haven't done that uh, as of late. So even even Oral Roberts has. Slipped a little bit, even though it's still the class of the Summit League, and I, I I suspect, even though I I really do believe what Omaha is doing is is real. Like I do think there is a legitimate build going on there, and I think they're going to be a contender. I I don't think Oral Roberts is really going anywhere. So that was, they were an interesting one too, that to look at the comparison of Bryant and and Oral Roberts there. So a fun project. Again, I would urge listeners to go to go read those if they haven't done so already. But a fun project. I'm a little bit sad it's over because they were they were kind of fun to go through. But at the on the other end of the spectrum um you know 31 conferences up and down so it is kind of nice to uh to move on to something perhaps a little bit different here but uh it was, it was fun at the time
0: baseball america college podcast is i believe the only place you're going to get a bryant uh slash nec deep dive That's right. uh, in late september so That's right if you haven't smashed the subscribe button already on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify wherever you're listening to this podcast uh Go ahead and do so because uh, you know that's that's what we're bringing to the table.
1: That's right. I stopped short of like doing a little bit about how like you'd think Norfolk State, you know, maybe wouldn't is You know, maybe it's their playing soft schedules, but they're really not because I did look that up, but I stopped <laughs> short of doing that.
0: I mean the 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 southern like I I think some of my initial shock was that it wasn't one of the bigger ones, but you heard me talk through it live that okay, all the 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 schools that you're thinking of in the MiAC are in the Southern division. Those are the schools that typically win the tournament in advance. And the fact that they're all together playing each other, uh, you know, it it surely is impacting the fact that, that none of them is at the top. I mean, also, you know, Bethune has gone through coaching change within that time and um, you know, has been a little up and down as a result. And um, you know, NCA&T is on the rise, but you know, at, the, at the start of this, they weren't quite there. So uh, to, not to deep dive the MEAC Southern Division, which will only exist for one more year, although I'm not even sure it's going to exist. They have voted to do away with divisions. We'll see what they do in the 2021 schedule. Um, you know the, the Southern Division has historically been the, the center of power in that conference.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you see that in the, in the standings there. They were also, although I will say Norfolk State, also the only MEAC team to finish over 500 overall over the last five years. Every other team was under 500 against all competitions. So, uh, you know, kudos to the Spartans.
0: There you go. Well, all right, that's going to do it for us today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed that Stockwatch series over at BaseballAmerica.com. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out or, or just – haven't seen the whole thing, they are all there uh to be read. Joe put a lot of work into them over the last several months, kept him busy throughout this uh this strange summer. So uh lots of lots of good nuggets to be found there, uh including the ones that, that we just highlighted here. Uh we will be back here uh with the baseball America College podcast uh next week we'll have another great guest. Um I guess I, I can say that it is Indiana shortstop Jeremy Houston. Uh, looking forward to having him on uh, to talk about the Hoosiers and, you know, look ahead to the 2021 season uh, for Indiana. We, uh, so, again, make sure you have subscribed to the podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy B.A and there is plenty of good content continuing over at baseballamerica.com even if the stockwatch series has ended my conference uh, recruiting breakdowns have begun uh, starting with the ACC the Pac12 will also be going online this week i'm going team by team uh, in some of the biggest conferences and right you know breaking down analyzing each team's recruiting class um you know obviously we've done the teams that, that made the top 25 and then the next 10 uh here we're focusing on the teams that did not so if your your favorite school didn't crack that top 25 we'll still have analysis of their their recruiting classes here in, in those biggest conferences uh, so you can check all of that out over on the website i want to thank you for listening. Thank you again to Virginia coach Brian O'Connor for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks to our podcast sponsors, MyBookie and RapSoto. Remember, you can check out the Rapsodo uh, player database at rapsodo.com nationaldatabase national uh, database. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America College podcast.